Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Why are women leaving the American workforce at a rate four times greater than men? Coming up, we talk to a researcher at the Center for American Progress. First, the number of coronavirus cases nationwide have shot up, and in Connecticut, we're unfortunately seeing the same trend. In the last two weeks, hospitalizations in our state have doubled, and if you look at a color-coded map of Connecticut identifying the rate of COVID cases, Eight out of 10 of us live in communities in the red alert zone or places with more than 15 cases per 100,000. Now what? Today, Governor Ned Lamont joins us to answer our questions and yours. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Governor Ned Lamont, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Now, you're quarantining, as many of your senior staff are, because your communications director, uh, late Friday, was announced that he's COVID positive. So first, how is he and how are you doing? Uh, Neither of us are showing any symptoms, uh, but let's err on the side of caution. If we've learned anything about COVID is um, you can't go wrong by being cautious here, especially for the next couple of months with Thanksgiving and uh, a lot of um, kids coming back from colleges all over the country. It's a good time to err on the side of caution. Mm. So when was the last time you had a COVID test, Governor Lamont? Are you negative? Uh, I sure hope so. Um, I certainly had one on Thursday that came back on Friday negative. uh, And I'm tested today, so I'll get a response tomorrow. Mm. So when we hear that uh, one of your staff members uh, is COVID positive and that uh, you are uh, quarantining as well as others in your cohort. Does it worry you that you've taken all these precautions and still uh, this virus, uh, you know, is so contagious? Uh, I think you're exactly right about this. We've been very cautious. We've been wearing the mask. We've uh, kept our distance. And um, again, so far, um, you know, one person on the staff of uh, 25 did did, uh, test positive. Uh, and the rest of us are just going to stay close to home. When we think about the cases rising in our state, Governor, why are they rising? What do you know? Uh, We know that um, unlike May, where um, this thing spread on a regional basis, came up from New Rochelle, the New York metro area, hit southern Connecticut first, uh, while the rest of the state and the rest of the country were not hit early on, this time you're seeing um, virtually 50 states and uh, all the counties here in the state of Connecticut. It's, uh, the, the entire country is red at this point. And uh, so that means a couple of worrisome things. I mean, um, before we could bring uh, extra personnel from northern Connecticut to southern Connecticut when the um, fight was happening and and vice versa. We can't do that this time. We have to be very careful as we hunt for our resources. 
Devin, it sounds like your phone connection is getting a little spotty. So um, let's uh, hopefully that'll it'll go away. But you know, I, I wanted to talk with you about uh, you know what's been reported, and I know the current state of Altamari uh, looked at clusters uh, recently uh, of of coronavirus cases, and they're happening in restaurants, in private homes, in places of worship. So what does that mean for you in terms of uh, some of the restrictions or guidelines that need to be in place to help uh, stem what we're seeing, uh, these increases in COVID cases? Well, as you know, for, um, you know, restaurants and houses of worship, um, we certainly have to that back more that uh, 50% um, uh, very restricted about uh, shutting down at 10 o'clock at night in the case of restaurants, um, no more than um, 25% or 100 people at the houses of worship. So we are being uh, cautious there. But it's not like it was in May either. We're finding that retail establishments can um, open safely as long as people maintain the distance and wear the mask. We're finding education, schools in particular, K-8, um, seem to have a very, very low infection rate there. So it won't be like May. You can join our conversation with Governor Lamont, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Adam's calling in from Newtown. Adam, what's your question? Hey, Governor Lamont. I uh, hope all is well. hope you're feeling good. Um, just a quick uh, question for you regarding the, uh, the Massachusetts-Connecticut quarantine exemption. I, I know you said you were speaking with uh, Governor Baker to work on a resolution uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was just wondering if you had an update on that. Uh, at this point, uh, we don't have an update. Uh, we have a, an agreement with all of our neighboring states, except for Massachusetts, uh, that you can travel back and forth uh, without the necessity of a quarantine. Um, you know, in part, it's just impossible to enforce and vice versa. Massachusetts, I think we'll have something uh, pretty soon. Uh, Governor Lamont, do you have an access to a landline uh, where you are right now? Sure. I'm wondering if we could take a, a quick break and if you could call us back on your landline so that our listeners can make sure that they can hear everything you're saying. Uh, what's the number, Lucy? <laughs> the number 888-720-9677. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back uh, with Governor Lamont in just 90 seconds. You're listening to Where We Live here on Connecticut Public Radio. Our guest is Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont. Uh, Governor Lamont, uh, we had a question from a listener about the travel restrictions and how you're working with neighboring states like Massachusetts. If you could just uh, tell us again, uh, because your signal was a little spotty, about how you're working with states like Massachusetts when we look at what New York and New Jersey are doing. Well, we got together with uh, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, lining up uh, Massachusetts and Rhode Island, Uh, in particular when it comes to Thanksgiving. We have thousands of kids who are going to be flying back into our region from some very, very infected states. So uh, our advisory is going to be very clear. You have to um, quarantine or test before you get on that plane. When you get off, um, show that you have tested negative. Then we'd like you to take a second test just to make sure that um, uh, when all the kids are coming back from all over the country, we're not picking up a uh, COVID hornet's nest. 
Uh, Miriam uh, on Twitter uh, wanted to know, you know, given the positivity rate in hospitalizations that have increased in our state, uh, she looks to Metro North and the NYC Transit with their enforcement policy on trains, buses, and subways. And she wants to know what is the enforcement policy for CT Transit, Governor? Uh, wear the mask and keep your distance. Uh, it, it's interesting, Lucy, that um, uh, Metro North and the trains, uh, very low occupancy right now. When I talk about keep your distance, uh, I think it's, um, you know, 85% of the people have not come back. Public transportation, like our buses, a uh, little more closer, I think, to 50% or so. But uh, this is absolutely the time where you have to wear your mask in a public venue like that. Mm. And are you hearing that that's being enforced on CT Transit, Governor? Uh, I think it is. Um, you know, when when you say enforced, I don't think we're sitting around uh, exacting a lot of fines. But I think uh, people are doing or self-enforcing, self-regulating. I haven't heard a lot of stories about people, uh, you know, defying the uh, mask rule. And if you do defy it purposely, uh, you can be subject to a hundred dollar fine. I'm going to take some listener calls in, in just a minute, but I wanted to go back to you know, one of my earlier questions when I'd asked about clusters happening in places of worship, in restaurants, and in private homes. You know, a lot of people are following the mask guidelines when they go out to pub in the public, but it's when uh, someone's in their home where people are letting their guards down. And I'm just wondering, as governor, what can you really do to tell people that they need to be careful as we're seeing these clusters and the cases going up yet again, and not to mention hospitalizations. Yeah, Lucy, that's, that's, that's the question. I mean, I can't do this by fiat. I can't say we're going to knock on a door and uh, fine you if you don't wear a mask. That's ridiculous. But what I can do is um, remind you that if you um, keep your gatherings to less than 10, you keep it just to your family, if um, you wear the mask whenever you're not with the, that immediate cohort. Um, you're keeping your family and your community safe. And um, so, again, it's uh, pretty much self-regulation. And so far, Connecticut um, is probably um, one of the best states in the country where people following those rules. But you do it by persuasion, not fiat. Mm. Uh, but yet there are still uh, these clusters happening, uh, Governor. I know last week you were talking about what you really worried about are hospitalizations uh, continuing uh, to rise. And does it frustrate you that, that, that this is still happening? Oh, well, there are some of these clusters. I mean, there's some uh, bad actors out there. There are, as I've said before, re um, you know, bars re uh, masquerading as restaurants. That's why we put in place a, a 9.30 curfew for last call. Uh, but more broadly, what's happening now is we do have community spread, which means it's not in different pockets, not just in those clusters, but as broadly out there in the community, why it's so important that you wear that mask anytime you could potentially be at risk. And what about when we think about our phases, uh, Governor Lamond? Uh, Maya on Facebook writes, are you considering closing indoor dining? Uh, we're... we're Nothing is off the table. Um, obviously, outdoor dining in those tents with those heaters is much safer. As you know, we cut the capacity down to 50% just so um, we're doing everything we can to allow um, the restaurants to keep going. But, uh, you know, we'll be determined by the metrics, and we'll uh, take a second look every week or so. Mm. Is it possible we could see a lockdown again like we did in March, Governor? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I, I think we found, uh, unlike March, that um, 
schools, particular K through eight, can operate safely. We're seeing that in Europe, which has a very high infection rate, but a very low infection rate in their schools, which they've uh, kept open. Uh, I think we're finding uh, that retail establishments, even places of business, it, uh, you're more likely to follow the protocols there. Make sure you avoid overcrowding during Black Thursday in the stores. And I think uh, we'll be able to keep those going as well. But uh, those places where uh, there's a lot of informal social interaction, that's what we're most worried about in terms of the spread. You can join our conversation with Governor Ned Lamont, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Patrice is calling in from Woodbury. Patrice, what's your question? Hi, good morning, Governor. Um, Thanks for taking my call. Um, I do have a question about schools. I know that um, you have said that schools have a low infection rate as compared to, you know, the general community. Um, My question is this. Each time a case is discovered um, in a school, that requires a number of of students and teachers to quarantine for 14 days. Um, And in some school systems, um, one in particular that I know of, um, today there are 45 staff out in a building with 100 total um, because of quarantining, not because they're ill. Um, So have you guys looked at that and the ability of schools to be able to actually operate their buildings when they have so many people in quarantine? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, Two things. Um, One, uh, we're rolling out the um, rapid response Binax test in our uh, K through 12. So that will at least be able to tell you um, whether that's just common flu or that's COVID, and we'll be able to know that in 10 or 15 minutes. So at least we won't have to have people unnecessarily quarantining. And the other thing we, we are looking at is our um, teacher colleges, college kids coming back, so that if a teacher, for example, um, has to stay out of the classroom um, and uh, or do Zoom learning, if there are other kids who can stay in that classroom, we have somebody who can go in there and uh, help the backup. But you're right, the biggest issue we're going to have in the schools is not the um, high infection rate. It's going to be um, staffing issues. Again, you can join us at 888-720-9677 if you have a question for Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Binax now that you mentioned, uh, Governor. I know uh, Middletown, uh, this, the public schools there in Middletown, Connecticut, um, have this uh, rapid test uh, site and these tests uh, for not only students but staff and parents in that community. Where could we see this expand in our state? Uh, we're getting this uh, from the federal government. We're probably getting about 75,000 doses a week. Uh, We started out in universities for reasons you can understand, Um, a lot of mixing and matching going on there. We're rolling it out to our school districts. Um, But these things are not cure-alls. I I just got to get everybody to step back a little bit. I mean, the Binax test is very accurate for people showing symptoms, Uh, but not as accurate or not as precise for people not showing symptoms. So... um, but it does help. It helps in terms of being able to make sure uh, that we know this is COVID versus just the common flu. When you're in the flu season, uh, that's a very important difference. You can join us, 888-720-9677. Amanda's calling in from Hamden. Amanda, you're on the show. Hi, good morning, Governor Lamont. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I do want to say that ever since the beginning, my family and I have been so impressed with your leadership in the pandemic. 
Um, but I do have to say that my six-year-old was near tears last night because he just learned that starting Monday, his school is going completely virtual after a very successful hybrid model. And I just wonder, why isn't Connecticut taking more of an approach like in Europe where they are prioritizing keeping schools open versus bars, restaurants, et cetera? Thank you. Uh, yeah, Amanda, um, yeah, they've, they've closed down restaurants and keeping their schools open in um, Europe, and uh, increasingly in the United States we're doing just the opposite. I think it's nuts. But um, uh, as regards your six-year-old, look, we're, we're leaving it up to local jurisdictions. You probably heard from um, the previous caller that sometimes uh, schools uh, close, uh, they want to stay open, but they run out of staff because they have so many staff who are quarantining. Uh, but especially at your child's age, six years old, especially pre-K through five, we're finding very low infection rate, much lower than the general population. And if you're in that classroom with your mask on, it's probably one of the safer places you can be. And keeping the teachers at a distance uh, wearing their mask, we're finding that's something we're doing everything we can to keep those schools open, especially at that age group. But you just said to the caller earlier uh, that from Woodbury, I believe, that schools are making these decisions to close, Governor, because they don't have enough personnel, substitutes uh, to fill in. And so uh, when you talked about this idea of having students from teaching colleges uh, fill in the gaps, is that something that uh, is possible within the next couple of months? Absolutely. Um, look, right now, a lot of our colleges are, are going to close down for Thanksgiving and not reopen till February. And that gives uh, an awful lot of uh, latitude for some of these uh, young people who are obviously much less likely to suffer complications to help out in the classroom. So uh, Miguel Cordona, our commissioner of education, is making sure a list of those um, would-be apprentice uh, teachers are available to our school districts, uh, helping them to stay open. Tricia is calling in from Hartford. Tricia, what's your question for Governor Lamont? Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, my question is, with the anticipation of many students traveling from out of state into Connecticut, will you be offering rapid testing at the airports? Uh, the answer to that is yes. Right now we do have testing at the airport. So uh, if you come off that plane in Bradley and you don't have a, uh, a form that says you've already tested negative, we test you right then and there. It's not as rapid as I'd like it, though, to your point. So um, uh, right now we, we send you uh, home or wherever you're going and tell you to quarantine for a couple of days until we can get that test result. And we're trying to see if we can speed that up. Christine on Twitter writes, what's the plan to expand testing and reduce turnaround times, Governor? Uh, she says waiting in line for two-plus hours will only discourage people from getting tested. Uh, well, Christine, um, First of all, we're working with local labs, so uh, despite what I said about Bradley Airport, um, a vast majority of our tests do come back in 48 hours. Uh, we do do more testing than almost any state in the country, but I appreciate that um, over the last, um, you know, we, we've gone from maybe, you know, doing 100 tests back in the spring to doing 20,000 tests a day. But now with the increased urgency, there are some lines there, and uh, we're doing everything we can to expand capacity take it to the federally qualified health centers, make it free, make it available, and uh, make it so that you want to get tested on a regular basis. Mm. 
Christopher on Facebook writes with promising news about potentially effective vaccines. He, you know, he'd like to hear you explain Connecticut's plan for distributing these vaccines, Governor. Yeah, we're going to have um, uh, several vaccine options uh, by the first quarter of next year, maybe as early as January. We know about Pfizer. We just heard today about Moderna. They have a pretty good success rate, but it will be complicated in terms of how you get this distributed. Um, Some have to be stored at uh, 100 degrees below zero. Some require um, two shots, not one. Uh, We may find that Moderna works better on one demographic and uh, Pfizer works better on a different demographic. So we're working with um, Walgreens, we're working with CBS, we're working with our fully qualified health centers, trying to put in place a distribution system that um, will be able to track all that on a comprehensive basis. And the other thing we're doing with, uh, you know, Deirdre Gifford and Reggie Gifford from, um, uh, Reggie Eady from uh, Trinity, is uh, getting to the community. So when we are able and ready to distribute these vaccines, people feel confident that they can take them safely. Mm. Again, you can join us if you have a question for Governor Lamont. He's just got a couple of minutes left, 888-720-9677. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to ask you, Governor, I understand that you've extended immunity for nursing homes. And I wanted to find out you know, why you made that decision. Well, for nursing homes and uh, hospitals, uh, and extended the immunity through, I think it's uh, February 9th, which is when my, you know, so it's just for another um, three months. Um, I've done it for a couple of reasons. We're in the second wave of this pandemic. Uh, We we put in place the immunity back in, um, you know, April or May because we were setting up mass units. We were bringing in, um, you know, not volunteers, but retired nurses and others. Uh, We were trying out different therapies and, uh, at that point, we wanted to make sure that people um, didn't operate in fear of, uh, of, of a lawsuit. Uh, when it comes to the nursing homes, remember, if we find um, uh, something's going wrong there and they're not following the protocols, we can sue them. Well, we not sue them. We can find them and we can shut them down. We've shut down one nursing home. We find a variety of nursing homes. Uh, so we are holding people accountable, which is the key thing. Mm. You're talking about Three Rivers and Norwich being shut down? That's right. Mm. But what would you say to the, to advocates and uh, families who've lost loved ones? I know in the first wave, I think it's 2,500 nursing home residents who died because of COVID, and they feel like if they don't have uh, the ability to hold these providers accountable, that uh, you know it's not a guarantee that their loved ones will be taken care of. Well, again, we're, we are holding them accountable at the state level. The question is... Um, you know, class action lawsuits against uh, a, a nursing home. Right now, I need these nursing homes um, um, open safely. I've got to create perhaps some uh, additional COVID-only nursing homes. I've got to make sure nurses uh, feel confident that they can go in there and take care of people safely. But believe me, if we find uh, they're not um, wearing the mask, if we find they're not doing the disinfecting, uh, we have a two-on-one hotline, so uh, family members, not to mention nurses, can call that things are not um, as they should be, and we shut them down. Mm. Uh, last question. Betty on Facebook writes that uh, she wants to know, as we're heading into the second wave, Governor, you know, what is the, the guidance uh, on N95s? Uh, her understanding is that they're still being reused uh, in acute care facilities. When we talk about an adequate supply of PPE, you know, what should be happening with the N95s? 
Uh, we, we have a good supply of N95s. We have a good supply of PPE. We just had to uh, take out a lease on a new warehouse because we found out that there was no stockpile in Washington, D.C. back in the spring. We had to scramble to put together our own stockpile. So we have a good, solid 90-day supply. In addition, our, um, our hospitals have their own supply, especially of N95 masks. You know, when it comes to the nursing homes, as we discussed before, we've got to watch them carefully. They're independently operated, and, and some are much better than others, and we're holding them accountable. Hmm. That was the last question from a listener, but I have to ask, you know, the other week we did a show about uh, the mental health of children and teens in our state. Uh, the Office of Child Advocate Governor putting out a public health alert at the end of October after four young teens in our state died by suicide. Uh, we know there's so much attention on the pandemic and COVID-19 as a public health emergency, but what is your administration doing to address the needs of, of residents and children, their mental health needs during this time? Well, first of all, that's why I, um, I'm doing everything I can to keep uh, those schools open. It's uh, not simply a matter of I don't want to lose a year of education. It's also just social and emotional well-being. And, Lucy, at our schools, um, sometimes um, uh, kids t- tell us or teenagers tell us um, things going on, so they're a first line of defense for us. I've got the 211 hotline. It just breaks my heart, the number of teens who are calling up, some of whom have been isolated for a long time. And, um, you know, we put them, we write them right through to probably another teen or um, a counselor that they can talk to. We call it talk it out. So we're doing everything we can to stay ahead of this and give people, um, you know, somebody of comfort that they can talk to. Mm. Are you, do you believe that your agencies are working together well to deal with this mental health crisis? I'm talking about your education department, public health, and also the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Lucy, I do. I mean, uh, we all talked about silos, and these all departments doing their own thing, and um, and that was sort of a, a just something you said. And we're realizing we have, a, you know, several times a week, unified command. Everybody's on the phone together. And uh, i got to confess, let's say um, a year ago I wasn't sure why um, Department of Public Health and Department of Corrections had to talk on a regular basis. I know now why they have to talk on a regular basis, and they're doing it. And when it comes to mental health, as you pointed out, we're making sure that it includes, um, um, obviously, our Department of Education. That includes our um, corrections. That includes all congregate settings. And the good news is, um, I'd like to leave you a little bit of good news. Um, You know, University of Connecticut, they have a school of social work. They're sending uh, those young people into our schools in Hartford right now. Uh, to make sure that those kids in those schools have a um, comforting shoulder they can lean upon as needed, but lean upon from a distance. We'll have to leave it there. Governor Lamont has to leave us, uh, but we'd love to have you back on uh, soon, Governor, to take more calls from our listeners. Be cautious, everybody. Be careful, especially during this Thanksgiving season. We're going to get through this together. Thanks, Lucy. That was Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont, and this is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We wanted uh, to pivot now uh, to a story uh, that is important but has gotten buried uh, because uh, we're all uh, drinking from the fire hose these days, and that's uh, before the pandemic. Women held just over half of all payroll jobs in the country. Now, September numbers from the U.S. Labor Department show American women have dropped out of the workforce at a rate four times greater than men. Now, some of the factors behind 
this may be obvious, like layoffs and childcare issues, but what are the long-term consequences on families, their communities, and our economy? Joining us now on Zoom is Sarah Jane Glynn. She's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Sarah, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me on. Now, uh, when I talked about uh, the pan- before the pandemic, uh, we know that women are still struggling for equal pay and equal opportunity. But when we think about uh, some of the, the, the measures that have been put in place and some of the progress over the last couple of decades, can you talk about where women were before the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to note that it, it wasn't an entirely rosy picture. We still saw lower wages for women, um, fewer opportunities, but overall women have made extraordinary gains in in the labor force over the last 40 years. Um, So like you mentioned, they were slightly more than half of workers right before the pandemic hit. Um, And we were really seeing a lot of gains, both in terms of greater employment and starting to narrow that wage gap. But a lot of those gains have been wiped out, unfortunately, because of the the response to the pandemic and the fact that, you know, women continue to take on the majority of caregiving within homes. So they've had a very different experience than men have um, in dealing with the fallout from Mm COVID-19. So I mentioned the, the the report from the U.S. Labor Department in September that I think 865,000 women have dropped out of the workforce. What do we know about that the, that particular number? How many of, of those women were laid off versus they've made the decision, the choice that they need to leave work because of these other factors like childcare? So I think it's important to know exactly what these these um, categories are capturing, right? So the unemployment rate is different than the labor force participation rate. And and what I want to focus on is labor force participation. So that includes people who have a job and are going to work and people who are unemployed, but who are actively looking for another job. And that's where we've seen this, this shrinkage, right? So whenever there are disruptions to uh, the economy, we'll see the unemployment rate go up. But ideally, those people keep looking for work, right? Maybe they're collecting unemployment benefits and they're still sending their resume out. They're still sending in applications. They're trying to find another job. What we're increasingly seeing is that women aren't working and they're not looking for a job. So if we look pre to post COVID or not even post COVID, this moment that we're in right now, nationally, we've seen about a 2% decrease in women who are either working or looking for work. Um, And it's actually even worse in Connecticut. A colleague of mine just sent me some numbers this morning. Connecticut's looking at about a 3.15% decrease in women's labor force participation, which is worse than the national average. So that means you've got a whole lot of women across the country and specifically in Connecticut who either lost their jobs or quit and are not trying to go back right now. And that has really negative impacts for families in the immediate term because they have less money coming in, but also in the long term. And then, of course, you know, it's bad for the economy overall as well. When you talk about uh, these women, uh, Sarah Jane, uh, when we think about the types of jobs they held or are holding, is it a majority of uh, service side of the economy? It's kind of all over the place. So I I think it's important to keep in mind, we're not just talking about one specific type of woman. I think oftentimes the conversation tends to be a little bit more about um, the more elite women, women who have the ability to work from home and are struggling to manage their job with childcare. That's obviously a huge piece of what's going on. There's also families that 
are fearful because, you know, maybe they have a vulnerable person in the family. Maybe they have um, an older relative who's living with them or someone who's immunocompromised in their family. So those people, whether they have caregiving responsibilities or not, might choose to quit working because they just don't feel like it's safe. And then you've got another group of women who, you know, they're still working perhaps outside the home. Maybe they have an essential job or they have a job that's still requiring them to physically come in. But if their kid's school has gone fully virtual, like some of the callers earlier were talking about, and they don't have access to other supervision or other childcare options, those people might also get forced out. So sometimes mm. we're talking about choice, but I want us to really be critical about, is this an actual choice that these people are making or are they being pushed into a situation where it feels like things are out of their control and maybe they're, they're making a decision that they wouldn't be making otherwise? So tell then tell us more about the women that are impacted. I'm thinking about women of color who are more often or not frontline workers, and they are dealing also with child care issues. I mean, that is definitely a big piece of what we're seeing. And we know that the impacts of um, of the pandemic have been particularly hard for communities of color in terms of health impacts, um, but also in terms of employment. So the unemployment rate for people of color is significantly higher than it is for white workers. Um, and that's true for both women and men. And we also know on top of that, that people of color are more likely to be essential workers. So they're more likely to be working in jobs, whether in healthcare or whether in you know grocery stores and things like that, that were kept open even when um, in the earlier days where we had more extensive lockdowns across the country. So it definitely has not been a, a, mm-hmm. an equal impact across racial and ethnic groups. And certainly access to childcare is a, a huge piece of that, whether you're working from home or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're hearing uh, Sarah Jane Glenn here on Where We Live. She's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. As we talk about uh, the number of women who have left uh, the workforce uh, in this pandemic, if you're one of them here in Connecticut, we want to hear from you, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I know the Center for American Progress uh, has published reports on this, uh, Sarah Jane. Something I noted when we think about the first wave, uh, 700,000 jobs were eliminated. 60% were held by women. And again, when I brought up the service side of the economy, I was thinking about restaurants and bars and hotels and the fact that even though uh, some states reopen, we're now seeing another surge where these jobs will not come back. Yes. I mean, that's a huge problem. So we know that the the service sector has been disproportionately negatively impacted, um, which makes sense if you think about the spread of the virus. And women were more likely than men to hold jobs in, in those fields. Um, so they've definitely been disproportionately hit by layoffs, by furloughs, um, and by closures, right? Some of those businesses are, are not coming back. Um, and I think the impact here is twofold, right? So on the one hand, you've got lots of people who lost their job either because, you know, the restaurant they worked at closed or they've, they've scaled back and so they don't have as many people working. And then you couple that with this ripple effect from families having less money now, right? If somebody in the family is unemployed or if someone in the family has, has left the labor force, that means less money in a family's checking account, right? And the first thing you're going to cut are non-essentials, which are things like getting takeout or going to a restaurant or maybe, you know, buying something from a store that's that's not absolutely essential to your well-being. And so that further depresses the economy and further depresses the sector of the economy that disproportionately impacts women. So there's kind of this this stacking effect where at every level women are getting hit a little bit harder than men are. 
Can you quantify uh, the lost wages uh, when we think about uh, these job losses, uh, Sarah Jane, uh, on our overall economy? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit hard to tell right now because everything is still moving, right? Day to day, it seems like things are changing. Um, but I, we did do some some analysis recently looking at what will happen if some of these changes to women's labor force participation stick. Um, and so if we stay at this level of, you know, 2% fewer women working than there were before, that means a, more than $17 billion in lost wages for those families over the course of a year. Um, and the other piece that we have to be remembering is that if you leave the labor force, if you quit working by choice or not, it can be really hard to find another job in the future. So women and mothers who are staying home right now to care for their children, depending on the amount of time that they're out and how the economy recovers, they may not be able to very easily find another job once they're ready to go back to work. So this has the potential to drag on for a really long time for those families. And that's going to hurt them in both the short and the long term, because then when you talk about this long term um, exiting from the labor force, you also have to think about things like retirement savings and future earnings that can be really significantly impacted by this time out of work. Mm. That's a really important point that you raise, uh, Sarah Jane Glenn. And so I'm wondering when we think about uh, how our policymakers have responded uh, to this first wave and now that we're heading into the second wave of this pandemic, uh, what are some measures that have been talked about before Congress and where where do they stand now? Well, I think there's a few different things that need to happen. And unfortunately, um, it's very difficult to get a bill through Congress and signed by the president at this moment. Um, and so it, things are looking pretty dark, frankly, if I'm being honest, um, just given what's happening in the lame duck Congress right now. But what we know there's a few things that need to happen. Um, one is more money for states because schools need more resources if they're going to be able to continue to function, right? And so in Connecticut, you know, the education commissioner has said schools should stay open if they can. But as your callers earlier talked about, and as the governor talked about, there's staffing shortages. Um, costs have gone up because of things like PPE and providing that for folks, um, the cleaning and sanitation procedures that need to be in place to keep people safe. All of those things cost money and school districts need it, right? Tax revenue is down because spending is down. And so we need to see an intervention and a greater flow of money two states to help pay for that. But that's only one piece of it, right? So that's kids who are old enough to be in school. But for younger kids, there are also really significant challenges that, that child care providers are facing um, that really mimic what's happening in schools, right? Increased costs because of PPE and cleaning and sanitation procedures and coupled with limits to group size. So that means they've got less revenue coming in because they're serving fewer children. And so we also need to bail out the childcare sector. And, and part of this is gonna require a shift in our thinking and an understanding that our economy cannot function without a functional childcare system. And that is a public good that we need to make investments in. Um, mm -hmm. So there have been bills before Congress to, to do these things, to provide more money to the education sector, whether you're talking about early childhood or the public school system. Um, but unfortunately, you know, we haven't been able to get through the deadlock in Congress right now. And so as of this moment, it's looking, unfortunately, pretty unlikely that we're going to see that happen in the immediate future. 
You're hearing Sarah Jane Glenn, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress, as we talk about women leaving the workforce over the last several months. After the break, we'll hear more from her about some policy recommendations uh, to help uh, women and families. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, Rebecca Kwong started writing her first novel, The Poppy War, when she was just 19 years old. Now the final installment in the author's dark military fantasy series, The Burning God, is coming out. On the next Where We Live, we sit down with Kwong, whose stories weave the fantastic with her deep knowledge of Chinese history. Have you been reading the Poppy War trilogy? Join us tomorrow on Where We Live. Now with us today on Zoom, Sarah Jane Glynn, she's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, as we talk about uh, the number of women who've left uh, the workforce and what needs to happen uh, to help them uh, regain uh, these jobs, as well as other policies that can support women and families, including childcare. And so Sarah, Jane, walk us through some recommendations when we think about a child care for all. So what it really comes down to ultimately is increasing supply and lowering costs. Um, right now, even before the pandemic, a lot of families, unfortunately, were really struggling to afford high quality child care for their kids. Um, it's very expensive. It's expensive to provide and it's expensive to purchase as a parent. And so we need to be doing more to bring those costs down. This was to be very clear, like this is a heightened issue right now because of everything that's happening with COVID-19. But it was an extreme issue even beforehand. And that's going to require a much greater investment. Um, and, you know, I sometimes sound like a broken record on this, but our economy cannot function at its you know full potential without women. Women are a significant sector of the workforce. They get more college degrees than men. Like women are a powerhouse, an economic powerhouse in the United States. And when we don't have access to affordable, high quality child care, that means that women can't work and they can't achieve their full potential in, in the labor force. Um, so it, it's a national emergency, in my opinion, um, and it's going to exacerbate the issues that we see climbing our way out of this recession if we aren't supporting half of our workforce. Mm. I'm thinking of a headline I saw the, the other week. I wish I remembered uh, uh, to properly credit it, but it said other countries have uh, social safety nets and America has women. I think that that's a really succinct way of putting it. You know, even though we have seen these dramatic changes in how families are structured with more and more women entering the paid labor force relative to generations past, women still do the majority of childcare and the majority of elder care within their families, in addition to all of the other sort of day-to-day tasks, um, you know, cleaning the house, preparing meals, doing the shopping, all of that disproportionately falls on women even women who are working outside the home, even women who are earning just as much or, or more than their partners. Um, and so those gender roles really harm us in the short and the long term um, because they create a really disproportionate workload for women. And we're starting to see what happens when that workload just gets to be too big and folks can't handle it anymore. 
I should give a shout out uh, to the fact that men are doing more than any other generation of men, but it's still not uh, half of what women do. Uh, and so when we think about uh, policies that are happening to help women and families here in Connecticut, we have a paid family leave that, that should be going to, uh, into effect uh, next year. Are we seeing more states adopt policies like this? I mean, it's definitely part of a trend that we're seeing across the United States. Um, Colorado just passed a law with this just a few weeks ago, right? Um, they had a, a ballot initiative to create a paid family and medical leave program very similar to the one that passed in Connecticut and voters overwhelmingly were in favor of it. Um, so we, we are seeing some shifts there. And I, I also should note, you know, Congress has provided some emergency paid leave to workers through the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. But unfortunately, it had a lot of carve outs, right? So that bill provides up to two weeks of paid sick leave if you have to quarantine or if you yourself become sick with COVID-19. Um, and it also provides up to 12 weeks, 10 of those weeks paid um, of childcare leave for folks whose kids uh, cannot go to their normal childcare provider or can't go to, to school. Um, but unfortunately, there were a lot of carve outs in that. Um, and so in Connecticut specifically, somewhere between about 51 and 84% of workers were not actually eligible for that emergency paid leave, which by the way, is fully paid for by the government. Um, employers don't have to, to pay the cost of that leave ultimately. So I'm really hopeful and optimistic about Connecticut in particular because your paid leave system will be going online soon, but families need that relief immediately as well. And so we, we need to see greater action at the national level um, to make sure that people can access that paid leave when they need it. Sarah Jane, we all hope we'll be out of this pandemic at some point. And when we do uh, get out from under this, uh, is there worry that some of these uh, child care slots that have been lost may not be regained? I'm thinking about uh, lower income neighborhoods where there are child care deserts. It's a huge concern. Um, earlier estimates were that there could be as many as 4.5 million individual childcare slots that were lost. I think those estimates have gone up as the pandemic has dragged on and as things have gotten worse and worse and as we haven't seen um, specific intervention from Congress to bail out the childcare industry. So it's a huge problem. And, and you're absolutely right to notice you know, a, a high income family is always going to be able to figure out a way to make it work, even if that means hiring a private nanny. But the lower income families, folks who have less disposable income, they're the ones who are really going to be hurt uh, because they already live in childcare deserts and they're already struggling to afford childcare. And, and the pandemic is only making that both of those issues significantly worse. Mm -hmm. We put a lot of focus on what uh, the government can do uh, to help uh, families, but I'm wondering uh, in this pandemic, are you seeing examples of where individual employers are stepping up and doing the right thing to support uh, their workers? Absolutely. I mean, there, there are really good employers out there who are doing their best to, to keep their workforce safe, to make sure that folks have access to leave when they need it, um, and because they understand that it's going to help them in the long term, right? An employer doesn't necessarily want to lose employees. It, it costs them money to have to replace someone, um, both in terms of lost productivity and, and the cost of training a new worker to, to fill in for somebody. Um, but unfortunately, you know, 
we weren't expecting this to go on quite as long as it has. And so even the best employers who really care about their workers and who want to do the right thing are having a hard time affording that in many cases. Um, and so that's why I think having a governmental intervention is so important because, you know, for a mega corporation that's making billions of dollars in profits, they can probably be affording to do more to help their workers. But, you know, a lot of my concern is with these smaller businesses that make up a huge sector of our economy, they can't afford to do this on their own. And, and we really want to make sure that they're able to do the right thing, hold on to their employees and hold on to their businesses as well. Mm. Sarah Jane, what are we missing in this conversation? Well, I, I love that you brought up men because I do think that that's a big piece of this that we need to talk about as well. Um, I think that we have seen that men are doing more within the home than they have in generations past, but we also know that men tend to overestimate how much work they're doing within their households. Um, and when men have been surveyed about specifically the response to, um, to quarantines and to lockdowns, they're reporting much less stress and much less additional workload than women are um, because they tend not to be taking on quite as much of that household labor as women are. So, I mean, that's one easy thing that families can do in the meantime uh, before we get Congress to act is to make sure, you know, take a look at what's happening within your household and try to make sure there is an equitable workload. <laughs> that happens in my household so I can do this show every day uh, remotely. <laughs> thank God for my husband. Sarah Jane Glenn, thank you for joining us, Senior Fellow so at the Center for American Progress. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible and on the phones today was Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll be back tomorrow.